0: Hey, everybody, welcome to take two of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and this is take two because um, my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, and I did a whole bit, uh, and then uh, I'd say we were four minutes into the podcast, then four minutes into the podcast, but I don't actually know because I didn't have a timer running, and the reason I didn't have a timer running is because I forgot to hit record. I realized... Four-ish minutes into the podcast, that I had forgotten to hit record. So this is take two. I'm your host, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and pillar co-founder Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hi, JD. I feel I feel sorry for the listeners. That was it was four minutes of top quality banter. That was some that they, top quality banter. It really was. Possibly I mean, the wittiest really we've ever been. <laughs> our repartee was really just beyond the pale today. Um, things that uh, we said. Things that will never be said again and never said again with with the erudition and wit and sophistication and cleverness and and the dulcet sort of voice with which we said them too is something that will never again be repeated Uh, it's a loss but we have to move on what can you do well uh what can you do is tell me how your advent is going ed we are well into the first week of advent and um that means that we are waiting for the coming of christ the coming of christ in the past at christmas the coming of christ in the present in our lives and the coming of christ in the future when the lord returns how is your advent going my buddy um it's going fine
1: it's going fine i i mean the habitual spiritual discipline that i tend to adopt for advent um is to get up very early in the morning early enough that I, any normal person would consider it in the middle of the night. Uh, and to say the divine office, you know, pre-dawn, as it were. And I, I am doing that this year, although it doesn't feel like much of a added spiritual discipline this year, because I've been doing that for the last two months anyway, because the baby tends to get up at about oh, that yes, hour. Yes, 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 so yes, I yes. don't feel like I've done anything extra for Advent yet. And uh, mm. I wouldn't say it's weighing heavily on me. I'm it, It's just where I am.
0: You may find, and this is just my own observation, I, the last thing I want to do is put my own experience on you, um, but you may find that over time, you will find that um, as a parent in the liturgical seasons, you you must sort of roll with what comes, and that the um, intentional disciplines which you once embraced are um, no longer as feasible as embracing the natural disciplines uh, that are the natural penances and mortifications imposed on your life with a newfound spirit of um, thanksgiving and contrition. At least that is my experience, or perhaps, Ed, it is simply my justification for a certain kind of spiritual sloth. I do not know, but it is what I'm going with today. Uh, that seems reasonable to me. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. How is the how is
1: the baby? Uh, fine, fine. It was um, vaccinations day in the in the pediatric calendar. Oh, geez. you know, I really don't want to talk
0: about vaccinations.
1: No, not yet. that one. Not not that one. The uh, you know, the the normal the normal run of the mill vaccinations that babies are given. Um. Mm-hmm. So, uh the child was was ill-disposed towards the experience and let let us know about that. Um, which is fine. Life is going to be made up of these little disappointments for her, so, you know. Good on her for
0: getting used to it. That's right. I will tell you that I am very excited about something, or I'm not very excited about something, but I'm excited about something, and I'm proud of something, I suppose. And I was trying to decide whether to bring it up or not. and um because I did not want to seem to be, um, you know, bragging or something like this or 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 even I you know, I have a certain aversion to even celebrating an accomplishment, lest it seem to be sort of undue self-promotion or something like that. Who did you beat? uh didn't beat anybody. In fact, something cool happened that I, that, I'm, that I am that I am just proud of. I'm just pleased to see it and I just realized it right before we started recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon. So I'm kind of just I'm just psyched about it and this is what it is. Um you probably know that on November 9th, I published a long story about uh, a family who was harmed by a priest named Father Bobby McWilliams who was sentenced to federal prison. I interviewed the family. I I wrote a long thing. You 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 read it. Yes. Yeah, okay. And it was a long thing and it was a lot of work and and I was very, very glad to do it because the family had a lot to um, to say. Well, um, today I noticed that two Catholic publications have published themselves sort of long pieces that explore or address or sort of delve off from the reporting that we did into discuss, into looking at kind of other themes or issues that arise uh, that have arisen in that situation. So the National Catholic Register, which is a newspaper, um, uh, has a story in which they talk to other seminary rectors about kind of so one of the questions that's raised in the story is about like red flags. Did the seminary should the seminary have seen red flags about this priest? Should the you know should the seminary have done more? That the family who was harmed by the priest say the, the seminary should have done a lot more and seen a lot more, and that the diocese should have had different responses to the seminary, um, and there should have been different interaction there. And so the. Um, National Catholic Register did a piece where they talked to some seminary rectors about kind of what they would have expected in that situation or and in similar situations what they would have expected in terms of communication with the diocese. And and just raising, I think, you know, some other perspectives on this, on this, these questions of of seminary red flags that were raised in, in, in our story. And it was a long and interesting piece. And then America Magazine did a piece in which they kind of asked, well, how does a seminary um how how might it be that a seminary misses these kinds of red flags or is it possible for seminary to detect all things and while you know i have thoughts about each of those pieces i I, what i think is really cool is like um to see uh long-form journalism which i think is important and reported journalism which i think is so much more important than commentary journalism like among different publications kind of in conversation with each other i just think is good for journalism so i'm just really excited about that
1: uh or i thought it was cool at least no that is good long-form journalism is a good thing we want to see more of it. So. Okay. Yeah.
0: What I'd like to start by talking about, Ed, is um, on Tuesday, we published a story. Neither of us wrote it. A, a, a journalist named uh, Claire Spinarski wrote it, but it was a very interesting story about um, paid family leave at Catholic and pro-life organizations. So uh, effectively, this uh, effectively this story asked the question, you, you can read it at pillarcatholic.com. The headline is, for some Catholic employers, paid parental leave helps honor the family. Um, and effectively, the question of the story is, why is it that... Um, Catholic organizations and pro-life organizations would seem to be pro-family, they would seem to be pro-baby-having, pro-motherhood and fatherhood, and yet Catholic organizations and pro-life organizations are often well behind their secular sort of counterparts, um, either in the for-profit or non-profit spaces, as it were, in terms of um, offering paid family leave. And the reporter, Claire Spinarsky talked with uh, a guy who does research on family policy and said, well, look, for a lot of places it's just Financially unfeasible and um, and so we need a policy solution to that where we would have some sort of I presume some sort of scheme where sort of paying into disability insurance or something like it would 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 allow for um, Sort of funded paid family leave and uh, and so that was one answer Um, and uh, and then we talked with and then she talked with some dioceses who do offer paid family leave and are trying to offer more paid Family leave and then um, some people who had experienced places that don't offer very much family leave at all and I thought it was a good story, um, and I thought it was interesting, and I think it was important. I've heard from a lot of ca- people who work for Catholic organizations since then who have said, hey, thanks a lot for publishing that story, because we have had this experience where um, the diocese or the nonprofit or the parish or the school—if it's the parish or the school, it's probably the diocesan policy, but—or the university or, or or whatever it is, um, you know— has a pro-family message, but does not have a pro-family family leave policy in in various ways. And, you know, that's just not, from the perspective of the people I've heard from, that's just not being heard or that's just not being addressed or dealt with. And I have a couple thoughts on that, um, one of which is just a difference in sort of what you might say generational expectations, um, that it seems to me that most of the people I've heard from who have felt like, yeah, paid family leave should be an ordinary part of the church's life or the life of, sort of Catholic confessional organizations, as it were, are probably forty or younger, um, whereas most of the people maybe a little bit older than that. Where, whereas most of the people I, uh, uh, who they said they have kind of run into, who for whom that doesn't occur, um, are are older than that. So one of one of the things that I observe is that it just seems to be kind of a generational shift here uh, about this issue. But um, but but I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts.
1: Um, well, I don't know that I have generationally conditioned expectations about this sort of thing, um, but I. I have certainly cultural expectations that are not met over here, and I've been shocked to discover the sort of general state of play, not just in Catholic organizations, but in sort of civil society more widely, um, coming as I have. Because you're English, Ed, is that right? I've spent the majority of my life in the UK, yes, and certainly the majority of my working life in the UK, yes. Northern Ireland, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, taking up to uh, a year off for maternity or paternity leave is perfectly normal are you um, serious? Yes. It's Taking it's a, a year off from maternity or paternity leave? Well, ordinary parental
0: leave following the birth of a child is at full pay is six months. Really? Yeah.
1: It's okay. statutory.
0: So, it, so if you work in an office in England, you're home and native land, and you um, are pregnant and have a baby, just the ordinary expectation is like, you have the baby in January, like, okay, we'll see you in June. This is pretty common.
1: Yeah, not, not just common. This is universal. And here's what's really going to blow your mind. Yeah. Is it's actually a requirement that if a mother wants to come back from maternity leave, uh-huh. very often the company is required to offer her, her old job back on a part-time basis, if she would prefer. Huh, you that's can go, interesting. You can go You can go. half-time having had a kid, having taken your paid maternity leave. If you want to come back, but only
0: come back half-time or part-time, they have to accommodate that. Okay, so we have an employee. We have an employee. here at mm-hmm. the pillar. And our employee, the pillar is um, a company owned by Ed and I. And so Ed and I are not employees of the pillar, but we own the pillar. We're the owner-operators, I suppose you might say. And, uh, and we have a, a network of freelancers who work with us. And then we also have an employee. And that employee is now on maternity leave. Um, paid maternity leave, I should say, uh, not to brag, but just because it's relevant to the conversation, but that employee is now on maternity leave. So you're saying if when she came back from her maternity leave, she said, I'd like to do my job part time, the law would require us to say, okay. In some circumstances,
1: I, I want to say yes, but I'm going to qualify by saying in some circumstances. That's super interesting. But it's, yeah, that's the ordinary course of affairs. I know plenty of people for whom that has been the case. They've come back from their paid maternity leave sometimes after a year and said I would like to come back part time, and their company has been obliged to accommodate them in that way. And very often, what you'll get is companies that have uh, people in in particular teams who who have babies over you know a, a relatively coincidental window. Um, will end up want to come back part time. They'll end up being combined into a single job share, and then they hire one more person to pick up the slack. So it ends up being sort of you know outlay neutral. They end up with three people doing work that was previously done by two but two of them are now working part-time and yeah this is i mean i can't believe that this is it, it baffles me that this is perfectly ordinary in somewhere like the uk but over here the alleged home of the free market and the flexible workforce people are like what you might have job sharing you might have like you know what how this should this should not be rocket science this is this is part of living in a society I mean, but then again, this country also has completely bizarre approaches and attitudes to things like holiday time in general. I mean, the the average working vacation allowance in this country, I think, is inhuman. It you know. It,
0: okay, so that's not that I've so that's taken it, but you know, so that's what
1: that's what in you would say. And I guess it's other- more
0: people who are like you, Europeans would say, I mean, because you're a European. Is that fair to say I'm that you're a European? I'm not going to be baited on this sort of nonsense, no. JD. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's what you would say. And I think that's what other people who like you are Europeans would say. And then I think there are a lot of Americans who might say in response to that, and I, I'm not saying I land on this, I'm just trying to kind of further the conversation. I think there are a lot of Americans who would say in response to that, okay, but that's why we have the longstanding world's largest economy. Because um, we force women to come back
1: immediately from having children after five
0: days leave. Yes, that's well, what the think, American industrial might is built on, J.D. I think that, is, I mean, I think that would be
1: the response. I'm not taking that position. Uh, breastfeeding clearly, mothers. But, that, those are the ones driving the engine of our economy.
0: Well, so you have this very different experience in the U.K. And then you come here, and it's not at all the experience that, you know, it's not at all what you observe. But what do you take as some of the, um, uh, uh, some of the reasons for this? One reason I ask that is because I, I said to you the other day, a company rightly ordered like um has a responsibility. It, it seems to me that in the realm of Catholic social teaching, a company rightly ordered has the responsibility to like put as one of its primary objectives the the well-being of its employees, which include like the flourishing of its employ of its employees, which includes um, you know, things like paid maternity leave and decent health care and, and retirement support and these kinds of things, um, paid family leave that um that that contribute to their human flourishing. And you kind of pushed back on that in some ways. I wonder if you would talk about that a little.
1: Um, I didn't push back on the concept. What the church teaches, the church teaches. And I agree with it. I think what I said is, well, that's lovely if we lived in Catholic la-la land where everyone was living out the magisterium in the free market, but we live in the world that we actually live in and corporations are not ordered to the good and human flourishing of their employees and their members, they're ordered to making profits. That's their function. Nobody starts a company to make the world a better place. They start a company to make a living. I mean, you know, you can have, I hope, at some scale, then our company, i like to think is an example of this, where if it's small enough and and created intentionally enough that it has, um, a mission and an ethos that it puts at the heart of what it does. And, you know, we have a profit motive in the sense that if we can't pay our,
0: we have a profit rent, motive in the sense that we want the, we want the business to make enough money for us to be able to support our families and our employees to be able to support their families. But our principal sort of goal in the thing is not like a killer fourth quarter. Our principal goal in the thing is to do the work that we feel called to do. So, right. which, which I think makes us is right. probably unique in certain ways. Well, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly not a, it's certainly not typical. Right.
1: And, what I was saying to you are trying to say to you the other day is nobody started Walmart with a goal to upping the human flourishing of the people who'd work at their big box stores. That's not why they did it. I'm not saying that makes it excuses the way they treat their employees in whatever circumstances. I'm just saying to, to advance the idea that there is this idea of a corporation, which is founded for the, you know, the human flourishing of its employees it does not take into account um the the socioeconomic realities of the market economy in which we live. And it just that's just not why people do things. It's not why things exist here. It's why you have, for example, incredibly miserly vacation allowances in the United States compared to other parts of the world, which, you know, are silly. and And the reason for that is not because, oh, well, you know, we need to you know, we just we can't operate without this. It's it's a cultural mindset which says you should always be working. You, you couldn't possibly take more than two weeks off in the course of a year because that's, you know, whatever. And the idea that you have, for example, one of the things that I, I still can't get my head around and I've lived back in the United States for three years now is the idea that companies have enumerated numbers of sick days that employees can take, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. I just, like that strikes me as barbarous.
0: Although like, I wonder, truthfully, I suspect that may be a thing of the past now that we are all more attenuated to the notion that we can get sick if we're in the same room as a sick person. Well, it's still there. Yeah, but I mean, I suspect it may be increasingly going, <laughs> going, going by the wayside. But I, I hear your, I hear your. Points. I just, I, I just found the entire idea that, like, you know, you have
1: whatever it is, five sick days and three personal days a year, mm-hmm. and you have ten vacation days. I was like, what is this? What, what kind of bizarre world is it where you can one. Count the number of days that you are unwell in a year. And you know, I, the whole thing strikes me as odd, J.D. I don't get it. I don't. It, well, I, so I, one of
0: the things that I, I feel like that... a stranger in a strange land in all of this. Well, so one, one of the things I'm glad you say that, because one of the things that I had hoped that the the, the reporting that we. But um... I tell you why, when I say that this is not a question,
1: of this is a question of cultural conditioning. It's not a question of, you know, well, this is what it makes, you know, mm-hmm. America have, a you know, the largest economy in the world or whatever. There have been during and post um studies which appeared to show there i forget where it was um it was probably in a scanty country because it's always a Scandi country that does
0: this um but That's some europeans li- call scandinavian countries at first i thought ed said scanty country and i thought it was some sort of a weird gross thing that he was talking about but this is just well they like songs up there
1: anyway uh but some company actually said they were moving full-time to a four-day working week
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and what they actually found was productivity went through the roof, Mm -hmm. that the company was more productive, the employees more productive, the company was more profitable, more work got done, more business got transacted as a result of moving to a four-day working week. Because frankly, you're willing to work harder and with better focus if not such a disproportionate amount of your time is spent at your desk. If you have a three-day working week, a three-day weekend and a four-day working week, then something like work-life balance actually exists, and this contributes not just to human flourishing, but also to um, a better under, you know, a better incentivization to work well when you are at work. And I mean, this this all seems intuitive to me. I mean, I am aware. It's
0: ironic because you and I both have a serious problem with work.
1: I, yes, I would say I am aware that I am sitting here sounding off on how can you possibly not offer six months of paid maternity leave when I myself took Six days of paternity leave, or something like that, and most of that I spend on my phone. I am aware that grousing about miserly allowances of vacation time is absurd because I don't think I've ever taken anything like a full allowance of vacation time in any job I've ever worked. And saying things like
0: "we should have a four-day working week" is absurd because yeah, I, yeah. we work seven days a week right now. No, so. we we don't. We work we we work six and a half days a week, and we apologize for the for working a half a day on on, on Sunday. Um. One of the things that I had hoped would happen with our reporting on this is that I had hoped that um, when when the story was assigned, I had hoped that um, we'd be able to identify, even kind of by data, some critical differences between Catholic organizations which offer paid family leave and Catholic organizations which don't offer paid family leave. That it would, you know, you'd be able to see a certain over a certain financial threshold, it was much easier, or over a certain uh, employee number, it was much easier because the work could be, you know, more easily shared or something like that. And, um, and we didn't. I mean, what I saw that was really interesting fundamentally is that, um, like so many things, um, the difference between places that offered some iteration of paid family leave and those which didn't was simply the, the will to, to, to make one choice or the other. There was nothing more to it, you know, in a lot of ways. I, I, don't, I don't want to oversimplify, but in a certain way, it seemed true, like that if companies simply said, or excuse me, if organizations, dioceses or, or, or otherwise simply said, we need to do this as a matter of justice then that factored in. And it seemed to me that what that effectively means is um, r- thinking about an employee in a different way rather than thinking an employee equals uh, 50 weeks of 40 hour a week or 50 weeks of 40 plus hours a week to say an employee is a person who is you know, a part of this, uh, team and, and oriented towards this mission and paid for work in this mission and and a and a person and fertility is a natural part of human life and um you know sickness is a natural part of human life and so to to sort of think that a shift in, in mentality which says employing a person is entering into a relationship with a, a person an honest to god flesh and blood person who who's made you know for all the things that human beings are made for rather than um, merely employment is a contractual forty hour a week relationship you know by which you will give me x number of widgets, and I will give you x number of dollars. That that's the shift. And once you make that shift, it seemed to me that was the difference between places that did and places that didn't. Once you make that shift, of course, it makes sense that um, it, that these things would exist. But it's just it, it sounds practically like begging the question because all you really have to do it seems to me based on this reporting is decide, and then um, and then that will govern how much production can we really do? Can we anticipate doing with x number of employees? Can we afford to have this number of employees to begin with? But to build into the cost of an employee. Of an employee these ordinary human things seem simply like a shift in mentality that then, you know, has these other consequences. Well, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm not trying to make that sound soft. I'm just saying, no, I don't think you're making it sound soft.
1: I, I'm, um, I find it hard to accept even the good faith idea that, well, you know, our, uh, the, the concept of employment is a person doing this many hours this many days a week over the course of a year. And so we can't deviate from that because that's how we structure our business plan Mm -hmm. or whatever it's I find it hard to believe that that's necessarily in good faith because show me any of these organizations and I'm not singling any of them out because I don't know. And so I'm saying genuinely, show me the contrary if it's true, that expect their employees to work to rote and only turn up for eight hours a day, five days a week and never work extra time. And, you know, There's the expectation that, well, you know, we're we're serving a higher purpose here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're having a big event, you're going to work long hours and weekends. And, you know, you're not going to get paid extra for that because it's just part of working in this, you know, in the wonderful ministry of, say, you know, advancing the pro-life cause. But we expect you bright and early on Monday, five days after you've had a baby. Right. Like, give me a break. That's right. You can't you can't enunciate a
0: policy like that out loud and not feel hopefully ashamed and yet I think that's why I say I think there's a real generational shift here is because I I do think that there there is a point uh, before which those kinds of things just did not seem like ordinary normal expectations and so the notion that that would be you know perceived as anything other than well it's what we can afford um you know it, it, it is w- would seem foreign right and it's what we can afford and we'll give you that and then you can take your paylet li- you know you can take your your vacation time or whatever else. And sorry, that's the best we can do. Not, you know, just because that's the way that sort of a perception that that's the way that things have always been done or something. Okay. But if you're going
1: to get into playing the generational card, then you have to say, well, all right, fine. But how many of uh, those generational expectations, to the contrary, were conditioned by a time at which it was expected that most households would be single-income, and yeah, a single right. income would be sufficient mm-hmm. to provide yeah. for a family.
0: Yeah, right. So, which ca- so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you've had this shift where you, there's no longer a realistic expectation for many people of a single-income out- household, and most organizations are not sort of paying people, uh, but certainly not most Catholic organizations are not paying people in a way that would suggest that they anticipate that there'll be a single income household. And yet some of the sort of vestiges of that, uh, of that perhaps are embedded in this. That's a very good point. Ed. Yeah,
1: I no, I find the entire thing iniquitous. I, 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 again, I'm deliberately not naming particular organizations that were canvassed in the course of this reporting because I don't know their inner workings and I'm not here to call out particular people, but I do think it's outrageous that. You, 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 you don't. A fundamental aspect of witness, of Christian witness to anything, is first of all how you conduct yourself. That hypocrisy is a grave sin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That hypocrisy in the church is rightly called out as a terrible countersign to the gospel. So, if you're particular work and function as a Catholic organization is a witness to life and to the dignity of the family and the importance of the family. And you expect your employees to toss up having had a kid after a few days and say, well, if you've run out of sick days, tough noogies, that is a countersign to the pro-life witness that the organization allegedly exists to promote.
0: Well, and I think that's especially true within the context of organizations, dio- dioceses and parishes and Catholic apostolates. Um, the context of organizations in which a person is very rarely hired to produce X number of widgets, right? I mean, the – the, the, right. the um, Well, no, but again, because if they were,
1: then working hours don't matter. And you can say, well, I've met my quota of right. hours. I've worked right. X number of overtime hours, so I get X met- many extra days off. But that never plays.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, in that context where and 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 more to the point where product where sort of revenue is not directly correlated to the number of widgets produced, right? So, um it, um it's it's not as if um you know, we need someone to be here because we need x number of um of uh, of resources for for parishes from the diocesan office of youth to be to be provided this month or else we won't be able to continue bringing in money. There's not this sort of this direct correlation between the revenue that we bring in and the kinds of things that the diocesan offices um, produce, which makes me think it's even simpler, I think, for dioceses to simply say, okay, well, we have slightly less productive capacity over the next X amount of time. Now, for teachers, you know, for teachers, it's a little bit more difficult because if you are at school and you employ teachers and the teachers are going to be out for three months and you also have to pay a sub and these kinds of things. But again, I think the right thing to do is to sort of factor that into... Um, can we afford to have X number of teachers? Can we, you know, can do we need to raise more money for our school or raise our tuition or whatever? Because, again, that just seems like an ordinary response to the, to the idea of hiring a human being for whom fertility is a natural part of their life and orientation and those kinds of things. So it's not easy. I don't want to say... Earlier, I said, I think it's as easy as making the decision. And what I mean by that is I think once you make the decision, once you say this is a fundamental tenant of who we are, then it becomes as easy as sort of figuring it out. And it's not always easy to figure it out. And there's the logistics that have to be worked out. But Well, and there's also the, the, the temptation to,
1: and I, this, this is a temptation that some places fall into, which is to say, well, fine, yes, we're going to have, for example, paid family leave. But what we're going to do is not actually spend any extra money accommodating that reality and getting someone in to cover the job if necessary, we're just going to dump the extra work on the people who are left.
0: Right, which is not which is not right either, right? No, I mean, that's also fundamentally yeah. unjust. And so if those things are happening well, so here's the thing about fundamentally unjust. And if, if those things are happening because we want to continue to pay the shareholders the same dividend this, you know, this um, quarter as the last one. And so we are going to ex- you know, we're not going to bring on a temp, but we're going to expect that you who um who work here uh, are going to pick up the slack for the people around you. You're going to make bricks without straw. Right. You're going to make bricks without straw because we need to provide the same dividend to the people who own stock in 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 Brickwork Inc. Um, you know that is fundamentally unjust. Um, it it also seems to me to be like not just reflective of Catholic social teaching to simply say uh, no. We're you know we're not going to allocate our resources in such a way that um, what we allocate towards personnel reflects the true reality of personnel. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that's a problem. I guess, and what we saw in our reporting is, you know, what what people who work at places that offer paid family leave say is, we made the decision to offer paid family leave, and then we figured out our budget in light of that reality. And at the same time, I can think of Catholic apostolates that really are, like, by design, doing a lot with very little. I visited a school last month, a Catholic school last month, where the employees are not getting... um, health insurance. The The employees are not getting health insurance because they all really want to do this mission, and they're sort of accepting that they're doing this mission under those terms. I don't know. I don't know what I think, you know, to, to, for me to say, um, oh, well, they should unquestionably be offering paid family leave. I think that is true. In, in principle, I really do. They should unquestionably be providing these things. I But I, I nonetheless don't want it to diminish the significance of, you know, of, of the struggle for Catholic apostolates, which are already so far behind the curve cash-wise that they're not in a place to offer a just wage. Now, maybe the answer to that is if you can't do the thing justly, don't do the thing. Well, Um, no, but hang on. In, In a circumstance
1: like the one you're describing, everyone there is, I'm assuming, committed enough to the output, the education of these children, such that they're all already agreeing, walking in the door to take a hit to what would otherwise be
0: the necessary preconditions of a just workplace, like, for example, Yeah, but I don't benefits. know if that's, I don't know if it's enough to, sim- I, it's, it doesn't strike me as enough to simply say, well, everybody agreed to be here. Um, well, it's not you a question know, of
1: everybody agreed to be there, but I'm saying there is a difference between a place that, I don't know, I, you, you can draw a line between places that are um, very intentionally working behind the curve, trying very, very hard to uh, accomplish a particular ministry, and those that have the trappings of a stable organization right. mm-hmm. offering or, you know, if, yeah. if you've got a corporate pension fund. Yes. You're, you know, you're not operating that far outside of the curve of a, a normal corporate environment, right. for example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the difference between that and, you know, trying to run a one room school, um, you know, on a shoestring because nobody else is filling this educational need and everyone there is
0: fantastically dedicated to it. I guess the question that I land on, I suppose, in a certain way, Ed, is is it just to do the thing if you can't do it justly? Um, you know, is it just to exercise some postulate if you can't sort of provide what, what we're saying is a just wage or what Catholic social teaching says is a just wage and part of a just wage is these human benefits and these kinds of things. Um, is it just? On the one hand, I think there's a way in which you can say no. On another hand, does that diminish like the significance of, d- does that diminish like the choice of missionaries around the world who are working, who are genuinely sort of laboring in the vineyard for the sake of the kingdom with n- no... Uh, remuneration whatsoever you know i mean I, so i, I, well, I think there's a this separate question about the
1: theology of missionary work and remuneration and you know what you give up to advance the gospel and i think there's there's, there's other factors coming into play there
0: but there is a way in
1: which that can be taken advantage of at the same time yeah sure it's possible to take advantage of those things but i'm saying there it's
0: i i wouldn't want to conflate an office job with missionary work well I, in a certain way i wouldn't either but i think um In a certain way, I wouldn't either. But I think you know, if you're running the missionary um, catechetical center, uh, somebody has to work in the office. Um, You know, and uh, and so who who are the people who must be compensated justly, and who are the people who are sort of diving into a mission without expectation of compensation to to live on providence? And how does the structural and organizational church meet that out? I, I honestly. I guess as we come well, okay, to this discussion, I don't also, know that I
1: know. But what? Well, so here's another thing that for me would be a crucial test of the uh, of the intentional justice of the thing. If you are an organization that is not in a position to offer, for example, healthcare benefits, let alone paid family leave, things like that. Yeah. Is it your intention to do so when you can? Right. I think and that's is important. That yeah. Laid out. I mm-hmm. mean, where where I think for me, I would have. Where I would draw the line is if this is just the status quo and acceptable, this is how it is. And we're not recognizing this as a problem. We're not making any concerted or intentional effort to ending it and redressing it. You know, if you're an organization that's taking in millions of dollars in donations a year um, and doing great work with it or whatever, but you can't afford to recognize the claims of justice of your employees when they have a family, what is your stated intention to fix that problem?
0: Where right. is that written down? I think it would be hard, Ed. To um, I, I would not be I would not be willing to employ someone if I did not think that we could employ them, um, you know, with a just wage and all the things that that entails. How, with that said, that's why there's just the two of us right now. Right. Well, I mean, but we have because <laughs> we can't right? afford anymore. But but we have an employee, and and when we brought that employee on, we said, look, yes, maternity leave, yes, insurance, yes, these things. At the same time, we also said. Um, but the long term viability of our project is predicated upon, you know, the viability of our work. And so we can't say that this is a you know, we, we we can employ you under these conditions, but we can't say that we have, you know, can do so indefinitely or that we can make a prediction about that we can do so in two years or three years or five years, because that's predicated upon the success of our enterprise and you should go into that willingly. I think that's I think that's a I think that's appropriate because it's what we did. Um, well, it is appropriate, but also we didn't take on more employees than whose just demands right, that, we that, could accommodate. Right, that we could not do, right? We could not take on another employee right now because we couldn't afford another employee right I'd now, really
1: period. love right. to hire four people right now. And there's
0: so many journalists
1: I think would be cool. But you're right. Yeah, exactly. We do. We, yeah. It, we couldn't even come close to accommodating the claims of a just wage, let alone things like um, helping them get insurance, uh, paid family leave, that sort of thing. We We do. We simply couldn't, but that's, that's the tension of justice of if you, you know, we're trying to make a living the same as everyone else. But if you, if you are, if you become an employer, you accept a certain responsibility or you should accept a certain responsibility. And especially if you're a Catholic employer, because
0: it is a question of witness. It is a public witness. And I think most fundamentally, you ensure that the, what resources are available to you are justly ordered, right? So in other words, you don't deprive someone of, a, of, um, of things which which you ought to provide to them, while at the same time, um, you know, ex- excessively spending on something else or excessively compensating executives or these kinds of things. If if um, you don't employ someone unjustly and you don't um, uh, you you don't um, dis- have a disordered um, economy, and that's true for an apostolate or a nonprofit or a little for profit or a gigantic for profit. Those are the things where you have sort of stepped over the line is when you your your finances are effectively you know, disordered or disallocated. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I thought it was a good story. I um, did too. I yeah. Thought it was thought-provoking. Evidently. Um, let's talk You called for, me a commie, in fact, after we... I did call you a commie because what did you say that was so... I was trying to look, but we, Ed and I, were very security-minded around here. And so we have our texts set to disappear after a certain period of time like um i think our texts 24 after, or something. after yeah something like that and so you can't go back it's actually back
1: infuriating and... because
0: i keep trying to scroll back and find links or documents you sent me and they've all vanished and... i know me too but it's what we do and it's probably smart but anyway so i can't go back to find out why i called you a commie do you, do you remember well it's because you had said to me but the purpose of a corporation is to be
1: ordered to the good and human flourishing of all of its members and employees and i said are you drunk the purpose of a corporation <laughs> is to make money and then you went off on capitalism for a while i did go off on capitalism capitalism is like democracy it's it's the thing that is here it's the thing that it, is, here and, the the thing that is here and as we see the further down the track you get with it the more it in its purest form is just bad mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, say more well okay uh if we want to I, I, do, I don't know what you had intended to talk about on this podcast. I never do. It's always an I wanted to talk about
0: France, but but I but I wonder the reason I want you to say more is because John Paul II talks about sort of the virtuous exercise of capital, you know, of capital and sure, exercise, and, and I think JP two said a lot about the virtuous exercise of democracy and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's true. And
1: if you have a a a body politic or a body economic which is sensitive to and alive to the church's teaching and animated by a spirit of um, justice rightly oriented to, um, to its fellow man and to its creator, then these things all work together. But this is why the, this is why society needs the church. This is why the church is called to be salt, light, and leaven. This is why the church is called always and everywhere to evangelize. This is why the primary function of the lay faithful is to animate the temporal order with the spirit of the gospel is because absent any of that, it's a bloody mess. Mm-hmm. And it is fundamentally unjust. So when people say, and so what I took issue with was your sort of statement um of of church teaching with which I agree, as though it were an accepted fact that this is the <laughs>
0: definition of a corporation think that most com- I, I think that a corporation exists for the common flourishing. Of its members, effectively. It in the this inclusion. is my point. It, it, and it, this well, is it exactly what the no, people it, know that it does or it doesn't. No, that's, no it, it does. does essentially, right. That is its essential no, identity. No, it think exists
1: for the purpose for which it is created. Hmm. A, a thing exists a thing for the purpose it, for which it is created. Corporations mm. are intentional creatures of law. They are created in particular. I don't know that that's true.
0: I don't know that but it's true mean, that the know, thing is just true. for the person. Corporations don't
1: have some sort of a, a, eternal
0: soul that exists well, no, only in the have mind a, of God. Have a character. What are I think it's fair about? to say that a corporation should exist for X, Y, Z. Here's no, what I mean. No, 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 no. You changed. You changed. No, I think you, it's, fair no, it's fair to say that a corporation does to a corporation okay, should. No, no. I think it is fair to say that the essential identity of a corporation is for the common flourishing of its members, and that includes its employees and others, even if the people who run it don't know that. In the same way that... If uh, let's think of an let's think of an example of a thing not existing for the reason for you know a thing existing for a different reason other than one for which it was created. Okay, so here's an example. Um, we uh, there there is a family and they have a boy and um, they in in their version of sort of the perfect American family there is a boy and a girl and so now they say we should have another baby because it's time to have our girl and indeed they get pregnant and indeed they have a girl. And people say, oh, well, why did you have a baby? And they say, well, it's just because it was time to round out our family. Well, the, the child doesn't exist for that purpose. The child exists to know, love, and glorify God, even if those who were sort of materially cooperative in its creation had a very different idea. Are you about comparing it. corporations to children? I am for the what are purposes you Mitt of this Romney? And that. For the purposes of this analogy, I am. A thing can exist for a reason other than the, you know, a thing can have... But this is
1: my point, is every individual and unique human soul is created by God.
0: Corporations are not created by God. Okay, so here's an interesting example. Actually, this is so interesting, Ed, because there's a real debate about this in the church right now that I have, have observed and would point out. And you're helping me to understand a different perspective about it. Okay, so... Um, Corporations you know Mas- are a
1: juridic reality, J.D. They right, exist in right, law exactly. and nothing so else. Know
0: who, so you know who Maciel uh, is, right? Yes. Okay, so Maciel, Father Marcial Maciel is the founder of the Legion of Christ. Yes. And, you know, he also turned out to be a notoriously abusive sociopath. And, and also
1: a complete charlatan with regards to his complete religious charlatan,
0: faith. Right. The Holy See said that he, that he was, I, I find this quote to be so damning, that he was devoid of any genuine religious sentiment whatsoever. I mean, what more could be said about a person? And And for this reason, I have
1: previously said that it is my opinion. Well,
0: let me just get to the thing before you say your opinion so that our listeners... Maciel founded this religious institute called the Legion of Christ. Yes. And, you know, then it would turn out that Maciel was a very, very bad man. And now there is a lot of debate about sort of what should be done with the Legion of Christ. And so it has always been my contention, like, well, the thing is obviously in need of reform, but the thing exists for the purposes for which institutes of consecrated life in the church exist... Um, and institutes of consecrated life exist in the church for the holiness of their members and for the uh, work of the apostolate and for the contemplation of God and these kinds of things. And the thing needs to be reformed to come into better co- sort of conformity with its own identity, with it, the deepest sense of its own identity. And what you, I think, have the perspective, if I may, it seems to me that you must have the perspective. The thing exists for the reason Maciel founded it, which is basically to be a money laundering sort of sex romp. And perhaps that's why you think it should be suppressed. Go ahead. You're jumping. Well, I am because you are you are exaggerating
1: and I would say slightly miscasting or poorly expressing what I think. But you're actually not far off the truth, which is what the Church actually says about institutes consecrated life is that they are they are their, their fundamental identity and purpose is to preserve the charism of the founder. And to so the my law, heart, Ed. what to the law? Uh, I don't. I'm in the basement recording, so okay. I don't have my books. I'll go to the law. You go to the law. But the 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 centrality of the original charism of the founder is the essential identity of an institute of consecrated life. So what I have said is, is if the Holy See has found, as it has, and decreed, as it has, that Martial was a complete charlatan devoid of any sincere religious sensitivity whatsoever, there is no founding charism. Therefore, it is impossible to reform an organization in line with the church's definition
0: of institute of consecrated life. So there's a juridic reality which exists, which the church says ought to do X, Y, and Z. And indeed, the church does say in canon... Uh, 578, that religious Institutes of Consecrated Life must observe faithfully the mind and designs of the founders regarding the nature, purpose, spirit, and character. But if the founder was no, just dead No, no, dead you skipped wrong, over that regarding the what? Nature, purpose, spirit, and character of an institute. Oh! Oh! But if the founder was just... and nature! Oh! But if the founder was just dead wrong...
1: No, he wasn't the wrong, say, J.D. But the, he was the false. Of, but, if,
0: but if he... But the church can say, well, an institute of consecrated life exists for these real things... And so we can reorient the, the this existing juridic reality towards those real things. I mean, isn't that possible? I think it's possible, but I do
1: no. I, it yes and no. Yes, I think that there are a lot of good people and vocations that have come out of the Legionaries of Christ and are still in it. I think that there is still an aggregate of persons and of goods that make up the reality of the Legionaries of Christ and attendant. Institutes and things that can be turned towards an authentic purpose. I think that it has to be wholly reconstituted, though, because what is missing, what cannot be satinated at the root is the absence of the original founding charism and intention that when it speaks about the nature and purpose being dependent on the intentions of the founder, that's not something you can just pull out. And that is a gap at the heart of the current
0: institute. It seems to me then that you believe that many corporations must necessarily be suppressed as well. Because they exist for purposes which are contrary to the teachings of the church, with no, regard to the exist, nature of no, the I'm not arguing that the legions
1: should be suppressed because they exist for reasons that are contrary to teaching of the church. I'm arguing that absent from them is what the church says you have to have as a founding principle of an institute of consecrated life, which is you have to have a sincere religious intention. So, you're, or, you're, are
0: you are you arguing that the Legion of Christ is sort of like constitutionally null? Not a constant... Well, maybe. I, I, wanna, I don't
1: want to... No, I don't want to use that. No, I don't want to use that language because Was I Was it think- invalidly erected? I don't want to be a positivist
0: here, but that would be a
1: big <laughs> I, bridge, n- Not invalid. I...
0: There's no way you can say that it was invalidly erected. I mean, that's just bobbycock. I didn't say that. You're saying that. No, you're saying that. No, I'm not saying that. I I don't want to say invalid qua invalid, but invalid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. I'm saying missing the defining characteristic for the valid erection. Yeah. Okay. So if it was missing some, uh, was it missing an essential element? kind of feels like it okay, is okay so if it was missing an essential element was it validly erected
1: well I, you are using what is
0: frankly the language of sacramental matter and no, form I, no, to I'm describe the using, juridic no, no, erection no, no. of a thing i no, <laughs> no i'm using the language of administrative acts an administrative act may be placed either validly or invalidly am i am i right or wrong about that i know you're in the basement but may an administrative act be placed either validly or invalidly yes okay and if there are certain essential, if there are certain essential elements to the commission of an act, and those elements are missing, is the act placed validly? It's not that the act can be
1: placed. It's not that it makes the act invalid because if the presumption at the time is that all of those things are true, and what's not there is not there and not known to not be there because of fraud, then you're dealing with a question of nullity, I think, rather than invalidity. Okay, so is the act null? I, I would think that we're moving towards a situation where I would expect the Holy See to say we have to look at whether or not this is null. Yeah, which oh. can it's not to say that you just wipe the whole thing out and pretend it That's, doesn't exist. It but you no. reconstituted in a way that has in place the thing that was missing from the beginning, which was a sincere
0: founding intention. I don't think the Holy See is going to do that. You know, I, I don't think
1: they're going to do it either. I mean, you're the one who decided to make
0: this about the Legion. Is I was talking about something else completely. I know, but now we're talking about the Legion. But you know why I don't think the Holy See would do that? Okay, so there's a legal. There are tons of political reasons why I don't think the Holy See is going to do that, and then a bunch of pragmatic reasons that come down to the Holy See's not talking about this or thinking about this. But um, Canon 124.2. A juridic act placed correctly with respect to its external elements is presumed valid. So, right. um, presumption the, of
1: validity, which is what
0: I was saying. So there would ha- actually have to be some process by which yes. the in, the internal elements of the juridic act were established. But the problem is, the juridic act is not the juridic act of the founder. It's the juridic act of who? Of the Holy See erecting it. Of the Holy See erecting it in principle. It's but the, the on Holy See the
1: basically was deceived into the erection by. A founder who had no sincere intention. Oh. This is fraud, JD, is what we're talking about.
0: They would have to, but that would only invalidate the act if the character about which they were deceived was directly and principally intended. Am I right? You're telling me that.
1: (laughs) <laughs> the founder of a religious order or an institute of consecrated life with
0: no sincere religious and, I mean, sensitivity so whatsoever was not, an, it was not
1: was not directly no, no, and principally no, no, no,
0: intended. If the, no, no, no. The Holy See the Holy See had directly and principally intended what was missing. But we're so far through the looking glass. I'm applying effectively marriage law. Yeah, you skipping situation around, around be, the code a lot here. To try, I'm skipping around the code a lot because I don't even know. I don't even know what we're arguing about here. I do not think that there's any way we were way supposed in which, to be I arguing do not think about. Any we were arguing, could, and I, I was arguing very successfully about that the holy that, that the legion of christ was invalidly erected or n- that I its erection was null I did not say invalidly null, erected or its dr- erection that. was null I asked you if its erection was null and I do not think there's any way that you could say it was and um and the I didn't say I, I think it was, was null
1: I said I think there's an argument for validity I'd say oh. I think there's an
0: argument for nullity to be made and therefore, there might also be an argument for nullity to be made. I think you've made my point now. We've gone really around in a circle. Therefore, is there an argument for nullity to be made for a corporation which is not founded in accord with the sort of essential doctrinal purpose of a corporation? No, because a corporation does not, as qua corporation necessarily, have a spiritual purpose,
1: J.D. its no. Institute Consecrated Life does. I'm not sure how that's relevant. It's very relevant because you seem to be arguing that there is a higher philosophical purpose to the juridic creature of every corporation, and I'm saying that's not true. A corporation which is founded as a creature of merely civil law only has to satisfy such criteria as merely civil law describes. And if a corporation is founded purely to turn a buck, that's its function, and no amount of wish casting by the church. But that's,
0: is- but that's not its function. It's just what it's just what it's it's just what its owners understand its function to be. But they're wrong. No, the church makes a proclamation of what this should be. I think the church makes a Not proclamation, what of what it's for. Isn't. What do you have this for? You have this for the common flourishing of your employees. Your corporation is more than you think it is. No, it can be. I don't know about that. I, I don't know. What if you
1: have a What if you have a corporation that is erected with manifestly from its beginning intentionally? started with manifestly unjust policies and structures in place to ensure that the money flows up and that there is basically a pyramid scheme, J.D., if, if a company is founded to be a Ponzi scheme, there is no way you can say, oh, well, your corporation, your Ponzi scheme is actually more than you think it is. It is, in fact, a, <laughs> at, its, at its core, it is begging to be a beacon of oh, justice right. and light for all those involved. About, so no, it was it founded to, for, to be a fraud.
0: I don't even. Yeah. Okay. You're right. All right. I'm going to give it to you. You win this show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have time to talk about France. Oh, uh, that annoys me because I really wanted to, because it's very interesting. Okay, then let's do it. Five minutes to talk about France. I have some things to say, but I'm going to give you the first whack at the ball. Okay, so what
1: happened in France was uh, at the end of last week, it was Friday, Le Point published a long article citing various anonymous sources making several allegations against the now former Archbishop of Paris, Michel Opti, uh, most notable among them was that he had an inappropriate, intimate relationship with a woman in 2012, at which time he was not a bishop. He was a priest and vicar general of the Archdiocese of Paris. Uh, It is worth noting that um, Archbishop Obati has said that he first met this person, I believe, uh, not when he was a priest, but when he was practicing as a doctor. He was a late vocation. Um, He has accepted in public that the relationship with this woman was ambiguous and open to misinterpretation, but has insisted that it was not physical and was not sexual. Um, but nevertheless, he has accepted that it was in some way not good, um, and that he ended it in 2012 and informed his relevant ecclesiastical authority, which was the then Archbishop of Paris, Cardinal André Vantois. Um, but this came to light in this Lepoix article on Friday, but there were also various other anonymous attacks on the Archbishop's governance of the Archdiocese of Paris, basically saying that he was a bully, an autocrat, a dictator, um, that, you know, members of his curia were resigning, various vicars in the diocese were resigning in protest because they couldn't work with him, this sort of thing. Um so when the when the article on Le Point was was published, um he so well <laughs> This is, this is really hard to talk about. It was almost impossible to write this as a new story because the archbishop said basically that he was leaving, he had he had talked to Rome, he'd talked to Cardinal Willette at the Congregation for Bishops, and he had sent some sort of letter to Pope Francis saying, it's up to you whether or not I continue in office, but he hadn't used the word resignation because he considered to offer to resign to be in some way abandoning his post, but he was leaving his fate up to the Holy Father. Um, the Holy Father accepted his resignation, which the archbishop has said he didn't submit but kind of did i don't i'm tired of parsing the grammar of that but anyway um, effectively he submitted his resignation to the pope and the pope accepted it today being thursday um everyone is chalking this up to this relationship with the woman which ended in 2012 by all accounts and for which there has been no public evidence other than this article citing anonymous sources who themselves say they saw an email allegedly from the archbishop then priest to the woman that was mistakenly sent to his secretary so there's yeah. been no primary evidence or testimony of any of this yeah um the only person with presumably firsthand knowledge of this relationship who said anything is the archbishop who said it was definitely not physical mm-hmm. um, and yet his his resignation has been accepted and this raises a number of interesting questions uh, first of all it is very very difficult we have seen To get Rome to accept the resignation of a bishop when there is grave scandal in the diocese or archdiocese, uh, even justly and independently demonstrably, so um, you know uh, the the bishops of Germany can't beg the Holy Father enough to accept their resignations, and yet they all continue in office despite public scandal around many of them. Um, There have been other examples where you know the former Archbishop of Lyon. Um, mm-hmm. Cardinal Bernadine, Bernadette? Yeah. Barbarin, Barbaran, yeah. Barbaran mm-hmm. um, was convicted in a criminal court for obstructing justice effectively in handling of clerical sexual abuse and the Holy See didn't accept his resignation. He was subsequently cleared on
0: appeal. Right.
1: right. Um, but, you know, again, talk about public scandal at the time. Um, and yet on the basis of a magazine article alleging a very... Ephemerally defined, inappropriate relationship with a woman. The Archbishop of Paris seems to have gone now. Either this is a new, an extremely
0: rigorous um chapter in the Holy See's yeah w- which, mode of, of 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 administering and responding to these things. Which I or yeah,
1: which I doubt it would be because first of all, this is the Holy See's mess. If, right. If it's true, because here's the thing, if he had uh, an ambiguous relationship in 2012, which he insists was not sexual, Mm -hmm. um, he says he told Cardinal Vantois, who was the Archbishop of Paris at the time, in 2013, the next year he was made an auxiliary bishop, which would have involved the nuncio in Paris and the Congregation for Bishops vetting him, vetting his record, talking to Vantois. So unless Cardinal Vantois decided he was Just going not to not to tell
0: anybody. Right, exactly. Which yeah.
1: doesn't to... sound either like Cardinal Vantois, and it's certainly not what Archbishop Obati seems to be suggesting happened. Right. Um, the Congregation for Bishops, the local nuncio, and the Archbishop of Paris all knew about this, and yet put him forward to be made an auxiliary, and all three presumably were perfectly fine with him succeeding Cardinal Vantois as Archbishop of Paris. Mm-hmm. So they decide if, you know, things happened the way... Card- Archbishop Obatis seems to have suggested they happened. Um, they didn't consider this to be any problem for him being Archbishop of Paris. So they're just taking his resignation in response to the scandal created by a magazine article with a bunch of anonymous right. sources? Right. I don't think that makes any sense. I think far more likely is
0: there are other reasons. And I have heard now from some French ecclesial friends who, who say... The resignation of the two vicar generals. So, so two vicar generals resigned from the diocese, and I have heard now from some French ecclesial friends who say these are two of the most respected priests, um, not just in Paris but in France. That the that yeah. these are people who are that the, the, the these two priests are extremely extremely well regarded by their brother priests and by other people who understand the life of the church. And so, um, if the question is, are there is it legitimate to take um, seriously complaints about the archbishop's governance um, and the, the possibility that the archbishop's failures of governance were the things which really led to his resignation, they say, look, um, these people are, the, the resignation of these people should be a tremendous red flag right. about the leadership of the archbishop.
1: And and Opetit said that in his non-offering of his resignation to the Holy Father, whatever we're calling it, um, he did so not because of anything he'd done in the past, because, as he said, if I had anything in my past that would preclude me from being the Archbishop of Paris, I would have had to leave ministry a long time ago. Um, But he said to avoid division in the diocese, and specifically if I myself have become a locus of division in the diocese. And that to me seems to be the most likely explanation here is that basically the diocese has become ungovernable by him because such are the divisions he's caused through his leadership, which would make a lot more sense uh, although, of course, as always, we're left saying, if only the Holy See would be
0: more transparent be about why they do the things they well, do. What's really interesting in this case is that the the archbishop made a bet, didn't he? I mean, he effectively, he, he did this thing, which now several bishops have done. Marx did it. And um, a couple of other Germans have done it. Velke, I, I, yep. Essen. No, is it the Bishop of Essen? It is, anyway, the bishop of is I don't remember his name.
1: Yeah, the the bishop who used to be Velky's auxiliary. In
0: yeah, mm-hmm. so the, he made this bet whereby he would say, "I place my faith in the Holy Father's hands," and what he was hoping is that the Holy Father would affirm him, effectively that he would um, do exactly what he's done in every other instance right, for eliciting some reason. the Holy Father's support, and he, it's a big bet, and he lost. Well, the um, odds were in his favor. The uh, odds, the odds were in his favor based upon what we know. Yeah, um, which. which again, makes very clear the likelihood that what's happening in Paris is actually probably poor administration of the archdiocese of Paris and poor ecclesial leadership, rather than this one uh, potential scandal that, unless there's much more to it that we don't know and the archbishop has effectively lied about it, um, what's far more likely is that this guy was bad at being a leader, um, and that was the issue.
1: Yeah. Well, and we don't know what um, what was already in the works when this when this article in Le Point came out. Yeah, that's um, right. It's it's possible that the clergy of his archdiocese has been writing to the Congregation of Bishops for some time. And this just coincided with things coming to a head. We don't know. We'll probably never know for sure, because God forbid we ever be told why anyone does anything in the church. <laughs>
0: <laughs> indeed. Uh, indeed. But we'll keep trying. Uh, I don't know how much... I don't know how much we'll cover that particular story, to be perfectly candid. But on the whole, we'll continue to try to um, understand the life of the church and help you, our dear listeners and readers, to understand it as well. Speaking of which, I am headed on a reporting trip on Sunday, Ed. I am headed to the far reaches of northern Minnesota, probably the furthest north in the the contiguous United States that I have ever been. It's basically Um, Canada. Yeah, it's basically Canada because, I mean, I've certainly been to Canada, but I don't know how much I've been to the sort of upper band of the United States, but I am headed to northern Minnesota for the installation of Bishop Andrew Cousins as a bishop of the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, um, to report on that a little bit, but also because I've been reporting on this uh, uh, situation in the Diocese of Crookston now for quite some time. Yes. So I'll send you a postcard. Uh, Please do. But before you go, J.D., would you like to play a, a little game?
1: Would I like to play a game? Yes. Uh, sure. What are we going to play? I've, I've just compiled a very
0: brief Minnesota yes or no for you. A Minnesota yes or no. Minnesota yes or no as seen through the eyes of an Englishman.
1: Okay. Um, all right, JD. Sure. Uh, Minnesota nice.
0: Minnesota. So what game are we playing here? Yes or no. Yes or no. and. Just tell the folks at home how this game works and what we're about to do. Well, I'm going to propose a series of
1: nouns to you, effectively, and you're going to give me your immediate shoot-from-the-hip emotional, um, instinctual response, saying simply, yes or no. All right. That sounds great. And we're going to start off with the concept of Minnesota nice.
0: Minnesota nice, which I presume is like Nebraska nice or any other Midwestern nice, which is is the the, the quality of being passive-aggressively um, both kind and a kind to a person at the one and the same time. I believe so, yes. No. No. Okay. I great. calls him like I sees him. Very good. Um, JD, the world's largest ball of twine. Yes. Yes. I am a sucker for a world's largest. My friend, one of my closest friends, lives in the town of the world's largest basket. Okay. And, Ed, I have been to that basket more often than you'd think
1: uh i can guarantee you've been there more often than i would have thought yes um all right jd uh pond hockey
0: yeah of course well what other i mean it's the best kind of hockey i'm
1: prepared to ain't, believe it
0: ain't no hockey like a pond hockey ed because the pond hockey don't stop except but obviously for the spring thaw fair enough um jesse the body
1: ventura no
0: no no no, no. you know the
1: class of the movie predator produced some extraordinarily successful political talent
0: was jesse the body ventura in the movie predator he absolutely was along with who else i Jody foster i don't know i don't know the answer to this. how can you have never seen predator
1: that's not i don't like that kind of thing realistic i it, it's a classic i don't even like that thing but i've seen it it's a classic film no two governors of states ended up coming out of that film jesse the body ventura and arnold schwarzenegger
0: Oh, you don't say. How if you'd that?
1: watched that film in a movie theater and walked out of it and someone said to you, two members of that cast are going to go on to be governors, I wonder what the average punter would have said.
0: I, I too, wonder what the average punter would have said.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, Mall
0: of America, J.D. Whew. Have you ever been to the Mall of America? The thing is, I'm from New Jersey, so I've been to the the malliest of malls in America, but I've not been to the Mall of America, the world's largest retail space or whatever. Wait, which is the
1: malliest of malls in America in New Jersey?
0: Oh, just that our malls are the best malls. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that our malls are the best malls is all I mean. But what's weird to me about the Mall of America is, if I'm correct, I think that you actually have to pay to get in. Do you? Uh, if that's true, if you have to pay to get into the mall, then it's a definite no. I've um, been to the Mall of America once. Did you have to pay to get in? I don't recall. If you if you do, then it's a no. So this is conditional. Um, if you have to pay to get into the Mall of America, then absolutely no. If you don't have to pay to get into the Mall of America, be honest. I mean, I'd like still to see no. it. Once. It's not a it's no. Me. I'd like to see it once. Doesn't have a roller coaster inside? Yeah, like
1: like it's a carny ride i mean this is we're not talking about six flags in there this is sure i found the entire experience to be very unedifying it was oh i
0: can imagine it's like a casino though i presume there's no windows in there you're never you no, gonna no i mean yeah. it does have a sort of
1: atrium style ceiling at least in parts but no I, and it had stages with like weird sort of fake pop performances going on it was i i found the whole thing very weird i felt like you know what i felt like jd i felt like i was in an early 90s late 80s children's tv show
0: oh. it,
1: it felt like the it felt like you were inside a tv like you know watching things like Save by the bell or something like that where you're like well i recognize the cultural tropes but this isn't real life this is slightly you know you can sort of see the fraying at the edges of the set. Like I felt like it was like you were inside a TV show like that. It's like this isn't the real world. This isn't what real people
0: do. You do. like Las Vegas?
1: Uh I have been to Las Vegas once in my life. I
0: liked aspects of it, but most of it, no. Okay, well then you wouldn't like the Mall of America. I'd like to see it once. Is there, are, the best is part there about Las Vegas is you can still smoke in bars. Is there a tiger at the Mall of America? Is there a, is there a magic show? I. I don't I can't I don't know maybe I, well, I don't, I don't know. know every day I, I, I has there ever far. been a tiger
1: in the Mall of America
0: probably has there probably. ever been oh, a... I have no doubt there has been a tiger in the Mall of America I'm certain that it has been I just wonder if there's a permanent tiger exhibit if there's a permanent tiger exhibition would that be a make it lot a zoo? of places I'll go to look at a tiger <laughs> I had no idea that you were I, I did willing to willing to I didn't park know and walk tigers into were into important in order to look you, JD, at a tiger. You, I mean, I, would, who doesn't? Who who's not interested in watching a tiger for twenty minutes? Are you? 15. Are you kind of a tiger guy, J.D.? Is no, that I'm not good? a tiger guy for like that sake. Uh, have I'm you just got saying, slightly
1: tiger king tendencies no, 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 here? No, no. I'm you, just saying. If you, if if JD, are you like, aware hey, of how you could purchase a tiger cub if you wanted to? Oh, I'm, I have no doubt you could buy a tiger very. No, easy, I know you have no doubt that you
0: could. I'm saying, have you have you like made any? Have I looked at certain? sites? yeah. Of course. The question is. If someone was like, "Hey, do you want to go get a cinnabon and also look at a tiger?" Is there any situation <laughs> in which you say no? Yes, because cinnabon is horrible. Wow. Okay, an anti-ant then. Uh, um,
1: I no. I we're gonna we are going to revisit in subsequent episodes
0: your unexpected um, tiger. You're misunderstanding. I, I, I'm, I don't have some sort of, I don't have some sort of a thing for tigers. I'm just Apparently saying. Apparently you do. I'm just saying if I could both get a, a Sparrow slice of pizza and watch a tiger for 15 minutes without very much effort at all, I'd probably do that.
1: Well, you'd have to go to Minnesota. That's a lot of effort. Uh, yeah, assuming and I'm assuming both to of those things are present at the I'm Mall of America, to which is but unestablished,
0: I'm going to be very far away from the Mall of America, and I don't know if there's a tiger in Crookston, like if I'm in Crookston, Minnesota. Okay, so I'm going to get to Crookston, Minnesota, Sunday afternoon, right? And I got to thing, you know, I'm going to go to the thing because I'm going to report about the thing, and there's a press thing, and I'm going to interview the, you know, ask the bishop some questions at the press thing because I have some questions that I want to ask, and so you know, then Sunday night rolls around. And if, if I check into my hotel and I'm looking at the things to do in Crookston and I find out that there's a place where I can go watch a tiger, I'm probably going to do that. Are you not? No, I'm, I mean, I, I don't find
1: them that fascinating. I... How much time have you spent any time looking at a tiger? I, I mean, I've been to zoos infrequently in my childhood.
0: Okay, well, maybe your life is more exciting than mine Ed. But I would I would go to watch that. What I'm finding out, by the way, is that there is a there's an aquarium uh, at the uh, zoo. Uh, excuse me, at the Mall of America. I don't care for aquariums. I don't like the way they smell. And so that might be a major deterrent for me. That's fair. Uh, OK, yeah. moving on. Uh, Jello salads. Oh, wow. This is Interesting now i'm at the mall of america they have <laughs> we're ever getting out of
1: the mall of america aren't they we? have a
0: this is the thing they don't want you to get out they don't want you to get out you think the exits to the mall of america are easy to find come on they're not um they have effectively adult swim there are specified hours during the weekend when you have to bring your id and either be an adult or be walking next to an adult in order to be at the mall so they have like no teenagers hanging out at the mall hours at the mall of america that's that undermines the plot of basically every... Uh, I was about to say, is the,
1: isn't the function of a mall right. a
0: place where old people go power walking and young people hang out? Like So is, the young people, it may actually be some sort of a, an incentivized sort of cross-generational friendship initiative because the young people effectively have to... Buddy up with... Uh, buddy up with the old... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. This,
1: this, is, this is more discussion of the Mall of America than I had oh, anticipated. Oh, I can imagine. Anyway, uh, we got to go. Well, no, we have got to finish the list first okay we're gonna no we're we're i'm looking at the time we're not too far over we're fine we're gonna finish this um all right the minnesota twins
0: jd i mean i guess they don't cheat they're you know their their um stadium isn't is an indoor kind of a thing isn't it not? is
1: do you know a funny story about the minnesota twins and their stadium mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is they are the reason that the washington nationals exist how so well believe it or not not so very long ago jd in, in our living memory, uh, the Major League Baseball's intention was to contract by two teams. Oh, there was really? a time when it was not permanent expansion, that they were actually looking to contract both the American and the National League by one team each. And mm. the two teams that were going to be lost were the Montreal Expos and the Minnesota Twins. And mm. they were going to shut down. But what it turned out was there was an ongoing contract with MLB and its franchise in the Twin Cities saying that, Major League Baseball had to be played through a certain number of seasons at that stadium. Mm. And so they basically couldn't get rid of the team. They had to keep playing the games there. And so then they, they'd they already gotten rid of the Expos. So they said, well, we need another franchise to balance the American National Leagues. Where can we take it? And then the, was it the Lerner family or whoever, whoever the people are who basically realized that they could make billions on real estate if they agreed to build a stadium in that part of D.C. and and front a Major League franchise. Which they just get high- rid of the Expos because the Expos moved. Well, they moved, quote unquote, but they basically resurrected them, having said the Expos are dead. And then oh, they I didn't just... realize
0: that part of the, the yeah. story. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: No, they, the Expos were supposed to cease existence, as were the Twins. But because they couldn't kill the Twins, because of the stadium lease agreement, they had to sort of resurrect the Expos and find a new home for them. And that's how they ended up in D.C.
0: Okay, there you have it.
1: So, there's that. Um, Jell-O salads, J.D.?
0: Uh, this is a thing where there's um, fruit or something inside the jello. Yeah, and I think there's mayonnaise no. involved. Oh, no
1: good
0: um prince I, I don't i don't know i don't know the answer to that you don't know the so, answer to prince like i don't i mean i don't know you it's know yes that, or no jd
1: you like him or you don't
0: well you know this about me you know that there's a lot about pop music that i don't know because i don't care that much about pop music so i don't yeah, but know i'm not, know I'm not I,
1: asking you for an empirical judgment I don't this know is if your I know snap yes prince or songs. no
0: no no but I wanted to qualify all that because I knew I was going to say no. And then you were going to say, you don't like the guy who made the best single of 1987? What is wrong with you? How do we even talk to each other? I just didn't. I just wasn't feeling it. I,
1: I'm actually not that emotionally invested in Prince. I don't really care. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear it.
0: Uh, and finally, J.D. Peanuts. Prince seems like the kind of guy who would own a tiger, though, doesn't he? <laughs>
1: he uh, if Prince didn't have a tiger or two, I would be shocked. <laughs> he would be shocked, right? Would be I would be shocked.
0: Absolutely shocked. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. That guy. That, here's what I imagine that guy had prince is dead is he not he's very dead yes okay i would imagine that prince's bathroom had a glass floor under which two tigers sort of paced all day could you see that yeah that would track for me prince's bathtub and you're effectively standing on tigers yeah yeah Yeah. i I can't imagine anything else really that yeah that makes that
1: that sounds about right to me yep okay and finally jd peanuts
0: what is the correlation not the legume yes yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Greatest, co- greatest comic strip in
1: American history. Excellent. Very good. Would you please rank for me, J.D., your top five Peanuts TV specials?
0: Huh, well, I prefer the comic strips by a long I shot. I know, but we're talking about TV specials. So. Okay. The first one is a series, actually. Are you, sorry, are we, are you going five to one in your, in your ranking or going one down? Oh, great question. I'll start at five. Okay. okay. Five. Um, it's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Okay. Four. Uh, The recent Charlie Brown movie, which I know you're going to say is not a TV special, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Okay. The recent Charlie Brown movie. um, Three, I don't know if you remember the special in which Snoopy becomes an astronaut. Yes. Yes, from our youth. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, Charlie Brown Christmas. One, um, there was a series in our youth. We were, I, I can, I know this because I remember what house I lived in when we watched it, we were not yet, I was not yet 10. And I think we're the same age, I think. Um, and uh, so we were not yet 10. And, uh, and so it would have been in the it would have been sometime before, effectively 1992, um, where the there was a Peanuts sort of miniseries that recreated famous periods in American history. So the, the, um, the gang landed at Plymouth Rock. The right. gang then was at Independence Hall. It's possible the gang fought the Civil War. I don't know. Well, I think uh, that might have been
1: a little controversial even right. for back then.
0: I suspect so. You know, it was very weird. Like, um, uh, you know, um, Snoopy gets on top of his doghouse and suddenly flying over Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I mean, there were weird elements. No, no, no. This Snoopy thing, but was but
1: often fighting the Red Baron. He was right, often was in a fighting World, the Red world Baron, flying Yeah,
0: but flying yeah But, um, but but Snoopy drops Fat Boy over Hiroshima was a controversial scene, as you can imagine. Um, Did
1: that actually happen? No, no, anyway, oh God, no.
0: Scared me. But anyway, there was this Snoopy series in which they recreated these founding scenes from American history, or you know, kind of things from American history. And I thought that was really cool. I really liked it. So it's this is America, Charlie Brown, or whatever it was, would be my would be my number one. Interesting. Yep. We have
1: some overlap, but nothing in the same place. Okay, because
0: you, I presume you would put the Charlie Brown Christmas at the top.
1: Well, we'll get there. Um, does number five, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, okay, um, which is heartwarming and delightful, but there's too much looped animation at points, and it just it doesn't know quite what it wants to be. Does it want to be historical yeah. exposition? Does it want to be sort of modern mm-hmm. narrative? Whatever. Yeah. Just, it, the heart's in the right place, but there's flaws. Um, number four, Be My Valentine, Charlie Brown. That's a good childhood classic. Lots of great gag. Um, moments in there lots of slapstick comedy thoroughly excellent um, number three i'm surprised this didn't make it for you you're not elected charlie brown the nixon mcgovern episode no where charlie brown and linus are running for class president i don't remember that at all oh classic classic uh, strongly I'll recommend strongly recommend um okay number two it's the great pumpkin charlie brown mm. which really in my heart of hearts is my number one I mm-hmm. think it's just great. Uh, there's yeah. there's nothing bad about that one. Okay, has uh, some of the best stills, the best moments, mm. you know, the best pop imagery. You know, you talk about Charlie Brown the comics being better than the TVC, and fair enough. But you know, like for freeze frame moments, it's the great Pumpkin Charlie Brown is full of them. Uh, number one is a Charlie Brown Christmas because any point at which the gospel is literally announced okay. mm-hmm. on terrestrial television is that wins.
0: Okay, fair enough. There you have it. Wonderful. Okay. All right, I'll let you go now. Well, I'll let you know how many of those things I see in Minnesota, and if I see a tiger, you will be my very first call.
1: Please, please let me know how you get on with that.
0: Okay. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD, production home of the Justin Living Wage. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And if you like what we do, uh, don't forget to go to pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe and become a paying subscriber to The Pillar so that we can keep making the news that matters. Adiós.